What is up, folks? You're listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I am your host, Justin Kana. This is episode 28. And if you're new here, well, this is a show where I talk about restaurant industry news more often than not in the fine dining end of the spectrum that I'm paying attention to on my journey as a chef myself. The best part about this show is that you can get involved too. I stream the recordings of this show live on Facebook where you can comment and join the conversation. And I also love getting the stories that you think I should be covering over on my Twitter at Justin underscore Kana. And don't forget to hashtag the emulsion so I can find you and your story. Today's beverage, it's Monday, you know it's got to be coffee, but I think this might be the first repeat beverage week after week on the show. I've got the same amazing Ethiopian single origin coffee, Stumptown style, a little bit more insulated today in this fancy uh, thermos thing. Uh, I just got this in the mail, it's super perfect for me because I don't think I, I, I don't normally drink like venti style 24 ounce giant coffee beverages, so this one's nice and small. Um... Plus, I tried it yesterday with an iced Americano in this thing, and I drank it like four hours after I bought it, and it was outside, and everyone else was like sweating. It was ice cold, so that was dope, but uh, we'll work on a new beverage next week, maybe, maybe. This coffee is just too good. It's almost gone, too. That's how you know this show's going to be great because I'm all caffeinated. Uh, The episodes after the interview shows always end up being really great, I think, uh, just because I end up having kind of like a larger pool of stories to pick from. Uh, Last week's show was an interview, which was great, and I loved it, but we didn't talk news basically at all, so I apologize for that in in advance, kind of looking back. I struggle to kind of make sure I'm being respective of your attention, uh, because if we were to do the interview plus (laughs) cover all the news that I wanted to cover, it would be like a two-hour show, but I also want to make sure that I can squeeze out everything from my guest while I'm trying to be respective of their time, but I just feel sometimes it's just as valuable when I ask people about the what their opinion is on the current state of restaurants, because we kind of get into the news anyways when we do that kind of stuff. But just to get a different perspective for you guys on basically what other people are thinking on how things are, just be patient and just keep giving me feedback on the interview style shows because they aren't going to stop, but I definitely want to make sure that they keep getting better and better every single time. So first up is a really interesting article that I found on Grub Street by Armin Stevens that's actually filed under a rant, which is interesting to me. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. It's actually called, It's Time to Kill Communal Tables Once and For All. So let's get into that. It's actually surprisingly well written, which is one of the reasons I think you should read it yourself. I'm actually going to quote a lot of the article in this story, but it's all about... um, It starts off by the author and his wife going to a Chinese restaurant in New York where they were kind of expecting to, you know, get a wait for to wait for a table for quite a long time. But surprisingly, they got a seat uh, faster than they expected. And it was two seats at what ended up being a communal table. And they had nothing but disappointment to this news. Quoting the article, quoting the author now, quote, I'll share an Uber pool home after dinner. But just for an hour or two, please let me have 36 inches of table space all to myself, end quote. Also doing a little bit of commentary of his own on the current state of restaurants, quote, We are in the golden age of fast casual restaurants, food on demand delivery apps, and all day cafes modeled after coffee shops. A New Yorker can track down a very good meal for $15 or $30 without any trouble, so it's crucial for restaurants that charge more, places where diners will struggle to keep the tab for two people under $100, to offer fuller dining experiences where diners can noticeably be more comfortable than they would be at a restaurant where they order from, say, a counter. 
Great food is now practically a given in New York. Space is the real luxury, end quote. So that's more or less the consumer perspective. So I'd pass this question off to you as a consumer first, hopefully. Uh, And then I want to kind of give you the other side because I think it's important to address why this style of seating happens in the first place. So the article cites that a 2016 Zagat survey found that communal dining was the second biggest reason respondents wouldn't eat at a particular restaurant, the first uh, being cash-only places. So if the math doesn't add up, if people don't like it, why do restaurants keep doing it? Why do why do they keep offering communal-style tables for people? And the, the, the short answer is, is math. And restaurants can pack almost twice as many guests into a single long table than would be possible with smaller private tables. So they can pay a certain amount for rent but get twice, I mean in a perfect world, the amount of revenue from that same amount of space. But the author quote says, operator's gain is our loss, end quote. So I encourage you to go ahead and read the full article. I'd be interested to hear any chefs uh, listening, how they would perceive this style of dining, because for me, I have two restaurants that come to mind. There's this spot in Chicago called Publican, where I had a great meal a few years back, but I, I distinctly remember there being a communal table and not being able, not being super happy about it, right? My girlfriend and I were too spaced apart. We were sitting across from each other, but the the space, the the width of the table was a little bit too big, so we couldn't really hear each other because there was a couple next to us that was way too talkative, and that was really, I, I distinctly remember that uh, as being a bad communal dining experience. But the other restaurant that I've actually never been to, but it started off way, way back, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong on how they serve now, but there's this restaurant called Lazy Bear in San Francisco, and they started off as a long communal table where you would come in and enjoy a tasting menu, but it was revolutionary because no one had had really made that kind of fusion where you would serve a fine dining tasting menu, but it would be at a communal table. So you could be, I mean, obviously it's happened before, but this was exclusive. This was the only way that they served their, their food was at this big communal table. And I empathize with both sides, right? Because I know that there's those people who love to go out and sit at a table and meet new people. That's part of their experience. That's part of um, what they enjoy. I've had people come to me after my own pop-ups and tell me about how much they enjoyed the company that was involved. Um, They enjoyed the food, of course, but they, they also got a ton of value from just the fact that there was interesting people sitting at the tables. So I empathize with both sides. However, I think that this comes from Um, managing people's expectations. And that's really where it comes down to for me, making sure that the guest knows what they're getting so that they can make that decision before they arrive, which some restaurants, don't get me wrong, do really well. But others, like this one that's mentioned in the article, the Chinese restaurant, maybe could have just said something along the lines of, you know, well, we have two seats available now at our communal table, but it'll be another 25 minutes for something else to open up that's a little bit more intimate. And that's all you have to say, right? And if you can manage to do that, that's kind of that like that open communication with guests. It's crazy how things change and how people are extremely open to honesty. And I think this is different for everyone, but I'd I'd much rather get poor feedback from me being honest to the guest because then at least you can say, you know, we were just being honest rather than one of my guests saying something along the lines of like giving poor feedback because I promised something that I couldn't deliver on or disappointing someone. So that's 
you know, for me, I had a really interesting setup at my last pop-up, right? So the venue, um, this was uh, two weeks ago, and we the venue that we were at had this kind of, I'm trying to paint a picture right now, that there was a long bench, a very, very long bench seated up, seated up against a window. And then there was a bunch of two top tables that were kind of pushed in front of the bench and then chairs on the other side of those tables, if that makes sense. So what I did was I explained to everyone at the start of the meal, go ahead and keep the table separate if you'd like to enjoy your meal with the person across from you. This was also really difficult for me because I had three single diners, so I had to seat them with other people. But then I added, if you find yourself really enjoying the company of the table next to you, go ahead and just slide the tables together. So for me, we did eight courses for them, and it was all kind of like one service. So we we had the, like, it was great for us because we got to treat it like a communal table. We played it everything at the same time. But I gave people the option, which I really liked. I would like to think people appreciated, but I mean, we'll suppose, I suppose we'll never know. I received no complaints on it. So in a lot of aspects of restaurant culture, that means it was a good choice. So we'll more or less, I would like to make the same decision on the next one. I just thought it was very, very being able to give people the option by having like this communal table that could also be separated into separate tables so that if you decided that you just wanted to have, if you're on date night, if you're on date night, like my girlfriend and I do quite often, you can have that kind of intimate experience, but also be conscious of the fact that the restaurant wants to maximize the amount of space that it has. Um, I'd be interested to hear your take on this because it, it, it causes a uh, fire on both sides. Next up is an interesting article I wanted to cover really quickly because it's a local thing for me, but also impacts all of you, maybe in some way, shape, or form, and that is Whole Foods, the grocery giant that Amazon just swooped up, got the green light on all the changes with the Seattle-based company. So now you, the shopper, more specifically the Amazon Prime shopper, might actually be able to afford to get your groceries there. Quote, Starting Monday, Whole Foods will lower prices on a selection of best-selling staples across its stores with more to come, end quote. And that's today. Monday is today. So if you want to go ahead and check to see if your paycheck can support your cravings for, you know, large brown eggs and organic baby kale, today's the day, which is great. Uh, Speaking of feeling good about your food, I wanted to share and maybe get your opinion on a trailer that just came out from Anthony Bourdain all about food waste. It's called Wasted. And it's got a pretty star-studded cast of interviewees. So Dan Barber, Massimo Bottura, Mario Batali, they all come together in this weird fusion of food porn and environmentally conscious uh, cinematography where the goal is to at least make you think differently. And that's basically all that these uh, impact uh, ambition-style food documentaries can hope. Quote, one film isn't going to cure all of society's ills, Anthony Bourdain says, but if a few people start thinking differently about what they're eating for dinner in a different way or think twice about throwing out what is often the best stuff, it's a good day, end quote. So I left the the trailer in the show notes. Go ahead and watch it if you so desire. But I got the message. I got the message, basically. I got the gist of it from, from just the trailer, so maybe that saves me some time. But I wanted to dive a little bit deeper than that on this story because there's a unique perspective to be gained from the fine dining realm, and that has to do uh, with me for marketing and operations, and I'm going to get into that r- right now. I had my first experience with dealing with food waste when I was at Per Se. Uh, distinctly remember having to do the prep job of brunoising fennel. I remember going up to the butcher who was kind of more or less managing me after completing a deli 
of the project, which for everyone that doesn't know is about two cups of these tiny, tiny fennel cubes, and him being surprised that it, it, it only took me eight heads of fennel to get that amount. He thought it would take 12, and that's, you know, hats off to me. My knife skills are bomb, but eight heads of fennel for two cups of brunoise, that's crazy. If you've ever had to dice fennel before, it's not easy. They're, they're structured kind of like an onion, but they're all curvy and misshapen, so taking a vegetable like that and turning it into a perfect square means you're going to end up with a lot of trim. So that trim, of course, made it into staff meal. We didn't 100% throw it away, but I just remember that project so vividly. The second time I experienced it, and that still holds a weird place in my memory, was at Grace in Chicago, where we would take certain vegetables and do cuts on them to get just the perfect cut right? The perfect shape of portion. And I remember we did a dish with endives specifically where we'd cut them in a way that produced these kind of flag shaped pieces out of the leaves. And only until I moved to Norway and I started to see people using the whole vegetable, this whole Nordic culture, um, did I realize that there's just something luxurious about using only certain pieces of vegetables. There's like a curated element, right? Where no, don't eat that part of the vegetable, eat this one, and look how I prepared it for you. Like, look how we are able to just discard everything but just this piece for you. There's something, I'm willing to put in the work to do this crazy presentation for you. That's how a lot of these places justify the price tags on their meals, and people pay them, so so what's the problem? Man, I ate endives for staff meal for like three days a week at Grace, and it's not a good way to live. But I just wanted to give this perspective because there's something about being able to offer someone food that you see as perfect, like as a chef, you see as perfect. A lot of people value that and they will pay for it. So does that make it right? Not necessarily. And I kind of, now I cringe a little bit when I throw things out because the mindset that we switched to in Norway, at least Faka, was how do we cut this for two things, the most delicious way and the best yield? And then we'll worry about the aesthetic when it hits the plate. That's where the creativity comes in. So we get the best flavor and the most out of this veg- this vegetable that we can. And then when it's time to plate up, then we'll decide how we go about it to make it look visually appealing. And I feel like all the restaurants that I worked at before that were the opposite, right? So aesthetic comes first. How can we make it look bomb? And then how does it taste? And then if the yield sucks well, that's fine. We'll serve the trim for staff. So I look at menus now as using as much of everything as possible, right? That That's that's only natural, especially financially speaking. So when you see these places buying A5 Wagyu beef ribeye, where's the rest of that animal, right? And the same with amazing celery root. Where's the stalks from that celery root? It's something that I'm constantly working on myself. I actually have um, a movie that I'm coming out with this week where some of us went down to the docks here in Seattle to try and find fishermen that'll give us weird fish or bycatch off their boats that we can use for the Ready series of pop-ups because I'm all about using weird stuff because to me, you don't have to justify cutting an endive into a pretty shape if you can give someone a vegetable that they've never had before. And there's no fanfare or bedazzling required. And to me, that's cool. I want to be serving people amazing food, but not at the expense of the planet. And that's more or less where I stand. Next up, and a story I want to cover here just because the first sentence of the article that I just had to, I I read it and I had to cover it. Quote, you're not a superstar chef these days unless you also run a cerebral food conference of some kind. End quote. So you may or may not have seen this Alex Atala Brazil's biggest chef is starting a symposium called Fruto, and the tagline is, the possibilities to feed the world. 
That is going to take place in Sao Paulo next January, where they produce, um, br uh, where they are going to talk all about Brazil's food diversity. They're also going to cover how to feed a world where the population is 8.6 billion. That's where it's estimated to be in 2050. And they're also going to feature lectures from 30 different minds from various fields, such as sustainability, science, and gastronomy. So here's the kicker. Only 300 guests are allowed, so good luck getting in. But for all of us, uh, it's going to be broadcast live from Fruto's website, so that should make sure that us peasants can at least get to know what's going on. It's January 26th and 27th of uh, 2018, so mark your calendars for that. And depending on your time change, you may or may not have to uh, stay at, get on a weird sleep schedule if you want to participate. And as far as any backlash... I see zero in this project. A lot of people are kind of making fun of him as far as like, oh, you're just doing what's on trend. Like, Chef Andoni at Mugeritz has one, and Renee has mad symposiums, so you're just kind of following the trend. And But what's interesting to me is Alex Atala's perspective. He quotes, being, he quotes, I've been a presenter and a guest at numerous food symposiums around the globe, from Colombia to Japan, from Denmark to Australia, so I decided to run my own to talk about the things that are really important to me, end quote. And I'm all about it, of course. Like, create a sense of community in your neck of the woods. I'd be the worst person ever if I bashed this project, because that's essentially what I'm trying to do with this show. I'm talking about things that matter to me. And if Alex Atala has some, you know, like Brazilian clam supplier that he thinks is doing amazing things, then it's a thousand percent easier for him to highlight them or talk about them or get them as a speaker at Fruto than it is to try to find a way to integrate this clam supplier into something like MAD in Copenhagen. Is it a little bit in the clouds, though? Yes. I don't know that there will be any big revolutionary changes to our food systems by having this conference. The fact that it's happening, I'm nothing but optimistic. This is something that happens, and then awareness gets drawn around it, and then just getting people to think in this certain way creates macro changes in, you know, like the long term, like the 12, 24, 36-month long term. So to me, if you told anyone in the early 2000s that chefs can have symposiums and gather people around them to talk about feeding the future of the planet, people would have laughed in your face, right? But now that they're doing it, they're, not, they're actually doing it, and they can get people like me across the world to care about it and listen to what they have to say, I'm just, I'm convinced that this should be an ongoing thing. Having these, that's, that's, the only, that's my only rebuttal, is that these should constantly be happening. The, the, these conversations and stories and content should be coming out weekly or monthly uh, instead of these big, elaborate, once-a-year conferences. And the beauty of the internet is that someone like me can be a media company, just one person, and do just that, have these conversations and bring awareness to certain things. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And that's what's going to continue to happen on the emulsion. So I'm nothing but psyched that you're here to hopefully consume that. Oh, geez. Here we go again. Critics are getting eerily, eerily unanimous with their reviews of casual restaurants by three Michelin-starred chefs. Next, the, the, the latest being Michael Bauer, the critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, just gave Charter Oak, the casual spot by the team at Meadowood in St. Helena, California, two and a half stars on their latest project. So this is out of four, two and a half out of four. So it's not horrible. It's not the uh, goose egg that Pete Wells dropped on Made Nice the other week, but it's not great from a team that was expected to kind of make waves with this concept. It was, uh, it was, it, it got a lot of hype and it got a lot of good reviews, but 
it was interesting to see someone who is so um he's a critic he he looks at dining in an interesting way and that is one of the reasons why i will never i always preface or at least i try to preface critic perspectives in a good way because a lot of the great reviews have come from this very, very unique Napa market where they want this very, very big, elaborate, um, they'll pay for expensive things. But when you look at a restaurant very objectively in the way that a food critic does, you get different results. And that's why I wanted to cover this story um, and hopefully give you some background. Full full disclaimer, I have a friend of mine who actually is the pastry chef at Charter Oak, and I had the pleasure of going there after my meal at Single Thread there last month. Um my girlfriend and I just went there and had a cocktail and some dessert because we had just gotten <laughs> our minds blown at single thread. But um, upon reading this review from the space, red flags kind of started to pop up in my head because I wasn't honestly paying attention. Uh, and maybe to someone who, like I said, is a little bit uninitiated or comparing this place with a bunch of other restaurants in Napa, it makes sense why you would get some good reviews. But it's a little bit unfocused, and that was one of his biggest rebuttals to this review. Part communal table, part separate tables, all in disarray in the large 72-seat space. It's a little bit not flexible. So the food menu is tucked into a hard-backed book that's preset on each table, along with an order sheet that you'd find at a place like The Progress, where you kind of like very dim sum style, like look at the menu, write down what you want, and then give the order to the server but the unique part about this is there's no writing utensil so the diners can't check off their own selections so instead the waiter picks up the sheet to take the order which again left michael bauer wondering why right it feels as if quote in trying to be so cutting edge the restaurant loses sight of its purpose creating a comfortable and welcoming environment for both locals and visitors to be honest after my first visit i had no desire to return because the experience felt bogus end quote. The dessert cart that they roll around, which I thought was super cool, and that's where we got our desserts from when my girlfriend and I went, uh, I thought matched the minimal and neutral muted color aesthetic that Meadowood is kind of known for. It actually got lost in translation for Bauer, which he he wishes was a little bit more focused. Quote, the bright side of this dispress, dispre- depressing display is the dessert cart's optics made it easy to resist to those extra calories, end quote. These critics are so savage, dude. I wish I could write like that. My emails to, you know, purveyors would be so mic drop. Also mentioning the exorbitant prices of Charter Oak, as well as the 20% service charge, which is another story in itself. We won't go into that. It took Michael Bauer four visits to, quote, appreciate the food, end quote. It still feels like the restaurant was trying too hard to be different, which undercuts the owner's finely honed talents, end quote. So for me, it's a little unfortunate, right? We've seen it time and time again with unfocused concepts where there's a weird kind of bone in fine dining chefs to make things extraordinary and over the edge and a little bit ambitious, which I totally get. But if it's going to be casual, make it casual, right? And in this case, there are some great things that got carried over, the curated wine list and the thoughtfully executed food. But other elements, like the very, very hospitable service, apparently fell short. So when you have an establishment like Meadowood as your mothership, of course those expectations are going to come with it. And that was another thing that we saw in two weeks ago, the review of Made Nice with 11 Madison Park. You hear that these big, big players are doing something a little bit casual, and you expect the best. You expect uh, 
you expect these places to be a notch above all the other casual places who only have the casual places uh, to represent them. So they'll no doubt take a relook at what's happening and adapt. I have no doubt that Charter Oak will come back stronger than ever. Um, the space is beautiful. The food is solid. There are just some logistical changes that need to be made, at least in Michael Bauer's opinion. But to me, that is way easier than an entire facelift on the restaurant or a chef swap. Last up, and something that I wanted to cover just because it was shared as a throwback by one of my favorite food blogs, Ideas and Food, it is called Five Factors Shaping Creativity in the Kitchen. So I already have their 22 Rules to Deliciousness all written out in a notebook somewhere because it was... Uh, so I, I loved it. It just, I felt compelled to share this one. So if you want me to cover those 22 rules, go ahead and tweet at me and I'll make sure to cover that next week. But going a little bit deeper into their five factors shaping creativity in the kitchen. Factor one, uh, inspiration, absorbing and observing the world around you, asking questions and maintaining a sense of wonder. Factor two, Flexibility, the ability to change perspectives on a dime, looking at ideas backwards, forwards, and upside down. Separation of ego and invention, understanding that you will not necessarily invent the big idea, but having the ability to identify it and extrapolate it will be more important than the person who creates it. Factor three, motivation, the desire to create much be stronger than the fear of failure, throwing spaghetti at the wall, knowing you can always clean up the mess later. Factor four, adaptation, the ability to learn from your mistakes, successes, and all of the bumps in the road along the way. Factor five, refinement, in parentheses, editing, knowing when to say when, utilizing critical examination to determine when a preparation is at its peak, when a dish is done, and when a technique works perfectly, and when you need to do more, being able to trim the fat and sharpen the edge to reveal the hidden treasure to its best advantage. So they extrapolate further on each of these points uh, that I linked it up in the show notes. They go into specifics that you can kind of use when it's basically just a really good foundational set of questions to ask yourself when you're venturing into anything that's creative. I, of course, relate it to food and business, but maybe your thing is food and painting or food and writing or music and acting. Like we don't judge here on the emulsion. I don't care what walk of life you're coming from, but I left a handy dandy link for you in the show notes. And that also includes a, a really great PDF file that they made of all of these factors. So you can print it off and put it in your creative space or in your notebook, and that may or may not be a little syringe of inspiration you can just inject yourself with when you're coming up with something new. Last up, and our non-industry story is something I found last night. My friends were over last night and turned on this Netflix movie that's de definitely available in the U.S. I apologize if you're international and it's not available, but maybe you can get it from other sources in your life. Uh, it's a movie called What Happened to Monday? And it's all about a society where only one child is allowed per family. And this mother that dies during childbirth has septuplets. So she has seven kids in, in a world where only one is allowed per family. So they're all named after days of the week. And because they're all identical, they live in this apartment and they're only allowed outside during their day of the week. So one of the kids is named Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. So one day, Monday doesn't come home. And shit goes down. It's I really enjoyed it, particularly the actress uh, Numi Rapace. She plays all of the kids. She does all seven roles, and it's crazy. She does an amazing job playing seven different people, and it's definitely one of the best movies I've seen. And it was it was great because I had no expectations. <laughs> My friends just turned it on, and I just started watching. Um, 
I hope I didn't do the opposite for you. I hope I didn't hype it up too much because it's definitely a cool escape for you, um, hopefully, on your next Netflix session. Or if you're like me and don't really watch Netflix all that often, it'll maybe be a cheaper alternative to your next movie night. So with that, this has been The Emulsion Episode 28. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you've been enjoying the show, go ahead and give me a comment with who you are and where you're from. When you know, where you're listening from. I want to get to know you folks a little bit better. I feel like there are some lurkers out there who listen, but don't always get, I don't get to hear from you enough. And having you actively listen means the world to me. So if you're on iTunes, also go ahead and consider reviewing the show so I can not only tell through shiny stars if you guys like what I do on this podcast, but also other people who are new to the show can get a little bit of an insight into how you're enjoying the show. If you want to have a story that you want covered next week, go ahead and tweet at me at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the emulsion. And I look forward to sharing it in the next episode of the show. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.